Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. In 1993, architect and author Peter Calthorpe helped found the Congress for New Urbanism, a group of planners and architects that called for communities that value walking and transit as well as cars. Nearly 20 years later, the challenge to the hegemony of the automobile is starting to take hold. Demographics and concerns about carbon emissions are driving land development away from greenfields on the edge of urban areas and onto brownfields in cities and suburbs. But Peter Kelthor believes that such infill development will not be sufficient to meet California's future housing needs. Some building will need to be done on pastures, wetlands, and other undisturbed lands. The next hour, we'll discuss urbanism in the age of climate change with Peter Calthorpe. That's the title of his new book. With our audience questions here in San Francisco, please welcome Peter Calthorpe to Climate One. Peter, welcome. Hey. Uh, so you write that urbanism is the most cost-effective way to address carbon pollution that's destabilizing our climate. Why is urbanism the most cost-effective way? Well, because it's better than free. I mean, it costs less money to, to build uh, smart, walkable, transit-oriented communities than it does to build sprawl. Um, it takes up less land. It uses less energy. There's less infrastructure. There's less uh, overall operations and maintenance that have to go in. There's less roads. There's less of everything. The more compact communities are not only energy efficient, they're cost efficient. Uh, and they have the added benefit of creating a kind of cultural environment and a lifestyle that many, many people really desire at this point. And since you've outlined your vision, you're kind of one of the forefathers of this new urbanism, there's some market forces and demographics that are driving things in that direction. So tell us what's what the demographics and market forces are driving toward more infill or more urbanism. You know, um, the real estate recession is a sign not just of perverse bank financing models. It was also a manifestation that we've been building too much of the wrong stuff for too long specifically large lot single-family subdivisions. Um, a paper, a seminal paper in, in 2006 by Chris Nelson, when he looked for 20 years out what the, what the demographic and economic demands for housing were, he discovered that we'd already built enough large lot single-family um, 
to satisfy the market through the year 2035. He said in that paper in 06, if this is true, we're headed to a, a, a revaluation of a lot of that stuff. Too much of the wrong stuff. And in the end, it had to be propped up with uh, financing gimmicks because people couldn't afford it. And in many ways, they didn't really need or want it. And when you go out and you survey people at this point, uh, what you hear is when you give people trade-offs, they'd rather have a smaller lot home or a townhouse or even a condo closer to work, closer to transit, less commute dependent uh, than a large lot on a cul-de-sac. And that's because demographically it's a totally different world. We're only 24% families with kids in America today. The other 75% are other. They're single people, they're empty nesters, older baby mm-hmm. boomers, they're young people, single just starting out. There's a whole range of needs out there and lifestyles that the one-size-fits-all subdivision just doesn't satisfy. Well, if urbanism is cheaper and better, then why did we build so much of the other stuff? Why did that oversupply happen? Habit and inertia. Basically, you have institutional inertia, uh, which basically, you know, when you want to finance a development, it's all rear-view mirror. So the banks say, we'll give you money, but show us how it worked you know, the last, over the last five years, the comparables, as they call it. So, um, and then you have an, an institution like the home builders who are just, this is what they do, and they keep doing it. And so there's tremendous institutional inertia. We have zoning inertia. We have land use maps that dictate low density in many areas and single use in most areas. As a matter of fact, everybody likes to point at the Federal Highway Act in 57 as a kind of the backbone and armature for sprawl. But at the same time, the government actually financed zoning, gave money to local jurisdictions to zone the new way, which was single-use, low-density sprawl. But there's also some cultural factors, the American dream, right? Everyone wants a backyard with a barbecue, Ozzie and Harriet. I mean, that, there's that. Is that a legacy, too, from the 50s and we just haven't caught up? It's certainly a marketing strategy that missed the mark in, uh, in 08, and it certainly is a marketing, uh, an idea that no longer fits who we really are. I mean, in the end, if you ask people, do you want a 50-foot yacht, they'll say yes. Now, whether they can afford it is another matter, or whether they would even have the time to use it is another matter. The same is true of large lot. For many people, having to drive those distances and maintain those yards is not, not exactly what they want. And there are now many examples since we started New Urbanism, places like Stapleton, where you have four times the density of a typical suburb, uh, it, but it's still small lot. This is in Colorado where yeah, the airport in Denver, is? Yeah, in Denver, the reuse of the old airport there. And uh, you, you, you see it commanding a higher value in the marketplace. People spend more dollars per square foot for a smaller house and a smaller lot. But it's in a walkable community. They're willing to make that trade. So why aren't there more of those? There's economics. Okay, you mentioned institutional inertia. There's also some financing reasons, right, where cities have certain incentives to do, if you do sprawl, the developers will pay for the infrastructure, right? You can put some of the costs on the developers. You can do that anyway. You can do that with infill. But what you're hitting on is really one of the, at the heart of it and what we're going to see here in California as we try to implement SB 375 and the kind of smart growth strategy. SB 375 being the Sustainable Communities Act passed in 2008. Which which basically asks each region to come up with an approach to growth 
that isn't so land intensive, that isn't so carbon intensive, that isn't so automobile intensive. But you've got local jurisdictions that have for a very long time been saying, well, look, we're happy to take the jobs here, but we'd like the housing to go somewhere else and continue to push housing out because for them, low-density housing is a fiscal loser. The tax base doesn't support the services. Partly so because of Prop 13? Yeah. Uh, and when you build houses, you need schools and fire and sewer and, and police. And parks and all the rest of that. Now, it turns out that higher density, actually meeting market demand now, uh, is, is a fiscal win for cities. But they're not used to that. And they have existing zoning. And they have existing neighborhoods where people see they've got theirs. And their advantage is to keep it just the way it is. And so that's really the overwhelming problem that we have is, is people saying, well, you know, I've got my stuff. Let's just shift the problem somewhere else. Um, and you see that in places like the peninsula where you have, you know, a huge job engine and a huge number of people in commuting from great distances. Um, but, you know, they want to capture the jobs. They don't want to build the housing to, so, for the uh, workforce. And the way they do that is by having large uh, minimum lot uh, sizes, five-acre, whatever, in Woodside, Atherton, and they'll keep it the way it is. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's, it, there's a, you, we know, we've built a very complex uh, process to get, get housing built in this state. You know, we have EIRs and all the rest of that. And in the end, it's a very litigious, long process in which local opposition plays a very big role because, the, once again, the people who are already there and they've got theirs are the ones who vote, and they're the ones who put the city council in place. And so uh, the political structure isn't, isn't focused on the future and the needs of the next generation. It's focused on satisfying the, uh, the, the, the existing community and and population. And so it's a lot easier to block something than get something done. Uh, anyone who's tried to put a solar panel on their roof, their neighbor can block it, any yeah. sorts of things. So and it's all well-intentioned. I mean, I don't think that this is, you know, that perverse. It's quite natural for people to say, look, this is the way it is. I want it to stay this way. A good example, you know, we worked for years to do a plan for the Alameda um, a, a naval station over there uh, in Alameda Island. And the island had passed a law years years ago, Measure A, that said we don't want any more multifamily in our community. And translate that. What are they really saying? Well, they're really saying that they want uh, the economic and social uh, uh, standards of a single-family community. Um, and they're, you know, they're, people are so frightened by difference. Lower, lower income people who don't look and like us and talk like us and yeah. make money like yeah. us. And a lot of the code words that go around as well, it's increased traffic. One of the fascinating things about that site was you have to build a levee all the way around it. It, it will flood like there's about, by the way, there's over 213,000 acres of bayfront land that's developed that will flood as a result of climate change. We'll get, yeah, we'll get to that. But anyway, so you have to build a levy, have to build a transit. But when you move to multifamily, the auto trip generation per household goes down. So we were proposing 4,500 units instead of the 2,000 single family, but the auto generation was about the same because of more transit, more walking, and lower trips per household. So typically what people say is we can't do this high density infill because of traffic impacts. But it's not always the case. So actually, 
higher density housing means less traffic. Well, can mean less traffic. Can. So you have to design it in a way where there's lots of walkable destinations so you get people out of their cars. To do that, you need a critical mass. You can't get a grocery store without around 5,000 units of housing to support it. So you can't build a subdivision and expect to get a neighborhood store within walking distance. So it all kind of folds in on itself. If you build high enough density, you can afford to pay for the transit. And by the way, you've got the ridership there. Matter of fact, America had a great model. It was called streetcar suburbs. It's actually the way the whole East Bay evolved in the first place, which is we had these electric streetcars, and housing and services and commercial would cluster around it. Rockridge is a great example of an old streetcar suburb. Um, And to a certain degree, though, that's what the market is asking for now, and that's what the environmental needs are, is for that kind of um, development. A lot of people say, well, this is just some radical notion of forcing everybody into apartment buildings. Not that at all. Actually, this old model of streetcar suburbs fits America quite well. Peter Calthorpe is the author of uh, Urbanism in the Age of Climate Change and our guest here today at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, And you note that some of the densest neighborhoods in America and the Bay Area are the most popular and the most valuable. And yet we somehow seem to think that Density is, is evil, and we don't want more density. But you write about Russian Hill uh, versus San Ramon, et cetera. Uh, tell us about what the market is telling there, about the desirability. I'm going to read some numbers here because I can know I'm too old to remember them all, all the time. But if you compare because a lot of people say, well, you know, it's America. Everybody's going to drive no matter where you put them. It's just not true. So if you lived in Russian Hill, your average vehicle miles traveled per year per household is around 7,300. If you lived out in Rockridge, it's still decent. It's 12,000. Remember, the national norm is around 20,000. If you lived out in San Ramon, over the ridge there in a subdivision, it's 30,000. So, you know, there's a big difference in environmental impact and all the air quality and health and all sorts of things like that. But what's most fascinating is that the value per square foot of those three places, and they're all high-end. I mean, you know, this is apples compared to apples. This is a high-end su- suburb. Right. It's a high-end uh, urban infill, and it's a high-end city. Um, Russian Hill is 550 bucks a square foot. Rockridge is 420, and San Ramon, you know, out there, golf course subdivisions, 320 bucks a square foot. So the market values this stuff. Now you can turn that on its head and say, well, gee, look, what you're talking about, Peter, is too expensive. I think it's too expensive, largely because we don't build enough of it. And that brings us back to the recession and having built too much of the wrong thing. So what's going to happen to this oversupply, overhang that's out there in the marketplace? Banks are taking a possession of homes. Is that going to, how's that going to affect the market dynamics uh, for, for housing? It's going to be very difficult. And in, it's not going to be as difficult here as in many other parts of the country. Because what you see is even if they kind of take a hit and reduce the cost, you've still got these huge commute and transportation burdens. On average in the United States, 20% of household income goes to um, transportation, driving around. For lower income households, that goes up to 30%. It becomes a bigger and bigger component. So if you want the lower income and the workforce housing to be way the heck out there, you're burdening people with huge transportation costs, and those aren't going down as we watch the cost of oil going up. 
And so what we're going to do out there, that's a question mark I don't have a simple answer to. Some people indicate that that means that we don't need to build infill because you're going to have this reservoir of stuff. But the reality is it's not satisfying real human needs or environmental needs, and so we still need to do the infill. still also fairly expensive for some people. So one of the ways that some cities like San Francisco address this issue is that try to have mandates or requirements for affordable housing, below market rate housing, BMR, brokers call it. Uh, Do you think that's a good thing to put on developers? Because developers sure don't like to have that additional mandate to build, have basically money-losing product part of their development of their building. I, I think it's a good thing, but I don't think it really gets to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter now is lower middle class workforce housing. It's not the very low income. It's, you know, where can an average household with an average income find a place that, that's affordable? And that's not going to be subsidized. And that can only be satisfied by building more townhouses, more compact forms that are closer to transit. You know, if people can reduce their dependence on automobiles, they can spend more on the house. I mean, right now, the average household spends, you know, between four and six thousand dollars a car per year, all in. So if you live in a place where you need three cars, you're spending a very big chunk of disposable there. If you live in a place where you only need one car, all of a sudden you've saved ten thousand dollars a year, which is actually goes a long way towards mortgage and rent. So uh, it's the larger context that really matters in these. You can't isolate the problem of affordable housing as just a construction and home sales price issue. It, it's bigger than that. So more townhouses, higher density has great environmental benefits. It, it can save people on, on transportation, and it's really hard to do because no one wants it in their backyard. Is that right? Exactly. Years ago, we did a uh, plan for University Avenue in Berkeley. Progressive Berkeley, and uh, tremendous opposition by neighborhood groups who didn't want four-story buildings next to their single family because, you know, you have a commercial area, and then 100 feet away you have single family. Uh, but we got it through, and it, there's been endless struggles over it, but it's very slow, and it's very piecemeal. It's important. It's a very important component of what needs to happen in the Bay Area, but that small lot conversion isn't going to be enough. But Berkeley, there's been a lot more tall buildings. I was in downtown Berkeley yesterday. I went to Berkeley High School to talk to some students. There's a lot more tall buildings in downtown Berkeley than there used to be. You say that's a good thing. Yeah. And But the way they got there was by having a, a plan and giving it to the voters. And there, the voters said yes. Other places, voters have said no. No, in Berkeley, downtown plan has been voted down several times by okay. council. And they keep coming back. I mean... There's a few good, tenacious people who keep coming back and trying to get it done. So it's been a you know, really long struggle. And that, of course, adds to the cost of housing, which is how long you have to go through an entitlement project uh, process and how much money you have to spend on all the various components of it. It, it adds up big time. Then who's getting it right? Look around the Bay Area. Where are some places that are building transit-oriented development where people are recognizing that uh, density is good, can be good, developers are making money, people are getting a good quality of life? Where are the bright spots? Well, I think Mission Bay is a good example of the kind of infill. You see it in San Francisco. I just read about uh, Park Merced. Um, always controversial, you know, and there's always people against it, but Park Merced is a good example of taking a spot with 
uh, high high transit service and adding density, and it, it makes all the sense in the world. Um, so, uh, you know, we've done projects like the conversion of the Old Bay Meadows site racetrack, uh-huh. um, right. and uh, you know, converting old shopping malls like we did at the crossings in in Mountain View or Uptown in downtown Berkeley. Those are, I mean, Oakland. Those are all projects that we've helped design. And, you know, they are best practice, but, boy, we need to take that level of activity and quadruple it. And a lot of those Mission Bay, Bay Meadows, they were large plots of land that had some previous use, but you had a large parcel of land to work with and not a whole lot of neighbors saying, well, you're blocking my sun, you're blocking my view, what about this, what about that? Oh, you had a whole lot of neighbors complaining about Mission Bay. Bay. You had a yeah. whole lot of neighbors complaining about Bay Meadows. There's no place you can go that doesn't have neighbors that are going to say, not here. Then what's the key to getting these kinds of things through? Well, I think that this new state legislation begins to bat, head in the right direction, which is it's not you can't get to the solution with a grassroots kind of uh, uh, approach. There's got to be a balance between rational regional planning that says, look, it, you know, you're going to have local impacts, but you have regional impacts, and the regional impacts, whether it's on carbon emissions or air quality or uh, congestion and long commutes and all those things have to be weighed because local jurisdictions tend to only look at local impacts. That's their job. They, that's what they get elected to do. So. But that's the asymmetry in our governance system. We're too dependent on just on local. Now, local has to play a big role. The model I like the most is the uh, Growth Management uh, Act in Washington State, which sets the region to basically set rational targets each area, you need to set a growth boundary. You need to set have this many housing units to create a jobs housing balance. We're going to build this kind of transit, you know, a large framework plan. And then the local jurisdictions come up and within those boundaries. Say, you know, we're going to set our growth boundary here. We're going to locate the housing here. But they have to meet those uh, metrics. They have to meet those targets. Or what? Does someone lose or their they job? Lose, they, they, lose, they lose a lot of state funding and a lot of infrastructure support. Now, you mentioned the Sustainable Communities Act here in California. Is California trying to move toward a regional approach to get away from some of the parochialism of different uh, city councils and uh, boards of supervisors? Are, is California going to be able to get to that level of regionalism? It needs to. <laughs> How's that for an invasive answer? It needs to. You know, we're the first state to take on the the carbon issue with AB 32. And, you know, I think in a fairly brilliant piece of legislation, extended that and said, we're not going to solve it all with solar collectors and energy efficiency as much as that's a part of it. Land use will and can play a huge role in reducing carbon emissions. And that's where SV Sustainable Community Strategy comes from. It asks all the right questions. It asks the regions to develop plans that are going to reduce auto dependence and carbon emissions. Um, how it's going to get implemented is is a topic in, in play at this point. But it sounds like the California law doesn't quite have the teeth of the Washington law. It doesn't. Law. It doesn't. And it needs it. But, you know, uh, you've you got to go step by step. And right now, local governments really do control the metropolitan planning organizations. They They – basically make up their boards. So it's hard for, but for this state requirement, um, it's hard for these entities to really step out in front of local governments. 
Now, there is one, one, you know, kind of hidden line in that law that was very profound, I thought, above and beyond, let's reduce our auto dependence and, and carbon and all the rest of that, which was each region has to develop a plan that gets to a jobs housing balance. For the Bay Area, that was, that is profound because for generations we've been exporting housing outside the nine county area. People in commute at the rate of about 170, 180,000 people a day. So we're pushing housing way out into Tracy and down uh, d- down Valley below Silicon, uh, San Jose and all this stuff. Which is a huge carbon imp- uh, impact because there's a lot of uh, air conditioning in Tracy plus the transportation. Exactly. It's, exactly. It's, and it's a huge social impact because it means those with the least means suffer the you know suffer these long commutes. They have to go farther and farther to get affordable housing because we don't build enough infill. So um, I'm happy to say ABAG has come up with some new targets that actually get us to jobs housing balance for the first time in decades. The now, those targets are, yeah, the targets are very scary. Cities are saying, whoa, you want us to build how many units? But at least for once we have a real set of numbers that, that do address the problem. Do we have the tools to implement them? I don't know. But at least we've got them on the table. And most environmentalists have to really kind of stand up now and be counted and either be on the side of infill and redevelopment and and getting these densities in place near transit, near jobs. Or they can't continue to say, well, like Marin County says, you know, we've got our open space. Let's let the next – let's let Sonoma take care of the uh, our workforce. You mentioned environmentalists. Uh, I'm Greg Dalton. My guest today at Climate One is the architect and author Peter Calthorpe. We're talking about urbanism in the age of climate change. Uh, you mentioned environmentalists, uh, and they have traditionally uh, both against sprawl because it disrupts, uh, paves over natural landscapes, and you seem to be saying they're also in many cases against Infill. I, th- I think of the Sierra Club opposing Hunters Point because there were some concerns about a creek and, there. And the Sierra Club uh, opposed the transit in uh, Marin Sonoma, the Marin Sonoma Transit for years. They they showed up when we were trying to do the infill in Oakland, and they weren't exactly opposed, but they didn't like where we put the neighborhood park, and so they delayed the process for you. So it's that kind of. Uh, Missing the forest for the trees over and over again. So I have my one issue and, you know, I'm going to do this piece of open space or this, uh, you know, or this environmental impact and I'm not concerned with, with the big picture. You write that you're very suspicious of single issue causes. I think we've got to look at this as a whole systems and it leads to trade-offs and compromises and mix and mixed solutions. A good example is the saltworks projects down in Redwood City. There's 1,400 acres that have been salt producing for 100 years, and uh, the strategy is to use of the 1,400, 600 acres for much-needed housing, and 800 acres for wetlands restoration and levees and transit and parks and school, all the things that that community needs. So a real mixed solution. And there's just fierce opposition. There should be zero going on in that site. And it's that kind of all-or-nothing approach that's not going to get us to where we need to be. And you think that it's the business model, the membership model of some of the organizations that's driving that? I think that many organizations have a, you know, Save the Bay is they have one issue. 
bay, bayland ex, uh, restoration. Now, they just received 16,500 acres from Cargill uh, in a transfer in 2003. It's so going to cost $1.5 billion to restore all that. But rather than focusing on that agenda, they're focusing on 600 acres at, at Saltworks. And we should clarify, is Cargill a client of yours? No. But D- the, the developer, d The developer. So yeah. you think that, look, the Bay Area needs... I only work on projects I believe in, and I believe in this one. Okay. And so there's lots of jobs in Silicon Valley. People need places to live to get to those jobs. Infill is hard, and you're saying that, look, here's a part of the Bay that ought to be developed, part of it ought to be developed for housing, and that's a trade-off we need to make in tough times yeah. uh, to, to have... Look, it's a site that's a mile away from uh, the Caltrain station. Developers going to pay for three miles of new transit, which will connect the ferry terminal to, to downtown Redwood City and Caltrans. Transit meaning rail or buses or... Right-of-way, dedicated right-of-way, which will transition from buses to light rail as the city develops its own system. So there are lots of kind of integrated benefits that, that have to happen there. But the key issue for people is, well, can we do it all, say, on infill on El Camino, like we did in, in on University Avenue? And sadly, the answer is no. Those small lot conversions are very important, and they're going to really revitalize places like El Camino, but it's not nearly enough. And so you're either going to end up with people commuting great distances or you're going to use these larger sites. And so it's just like solar on rooftop, people who say, look, we need solar on rooftop, but we also need big plants in the desert, which also gets environmentalists very, very upset. It's all about, all about scale. We're discussing urbanism at Climate One with Peter Calthorpe. Uh, you write about regions being the economic engines these days, and we really need to think regionally. And you also have four futures that you kind of paint in, in your book. Uh, there's trend sprawl, green sprawl, which is an interesting combination, yeah. uh, as well as simple urbanism and green urbanism. So what are some of those big pictures that we can kind of look out and the futures we can expect in California? Well, when the state passed the law, they then said, well, how are we going to set metrics to, you know, what targets should we set? So we were asked to develop a computer model that looked at different land use futures for the whole state of California and began to answer that question. Well, it turned out as we were doing that analysis, we got all sorts of other data on the cost of different forms of growth. So, for example, if you were going to build the same thing we've been building for the last 20 years uh, out to the year 2050, which is the end target date for most of these carbon studies, uh, it seems like a long time, but it's not. It's coming, yeah. Um, we would consume 5,300 square miles of land. Now, who knows what that is? That is the, what does that mean? What does that mean? Right now, the Size urban footprint in California is 5,600 square miles. So, so we, we would double... We would double our footprint. That's ag land, that's open, you know, various habitats, that's a whole range of things. That's the low-density sprawl future. Now, um, if you were to... Um, uh, kind of put retrofit that just still low density, but put solar collectors on the roof and electric cars and all the you you'll do better, but you're still consuming that much land. You're building that much infrastructure, and you're building an environment that's very expensive and doesn't fit the demographics. If you go to a kind of a urban solution, you reduce the footprint to 1,800 square miles. So that alone, you can extrapolate that you know. 
that reduction of almost 4,000 square miles is less roads, less utilities, less maintenance, less land to police and mm-hmm. send firemen out to, all the, the various impacts. And you get a more affordable um, urban environment that fits the demographics in the marketplace. So it's quite a win. And then you can green that. You can take that, you know, kind of streetcar suburb and that urban infill and you can put a solar collector on the roof and you can basically give people free car share um, licenses right. and all sorts of good things and you can you can invest a lot more in transit. So uh, the differences are dramatic um the uh, VMT comes down from vehicle miles traveled the total yeah by about 10,000 in the kind of smart growth future uh as opposed to the sprawl future um we 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 have we begin to solve our water problem because of course the sprawl means big yards to irrigate and and big parking lots to take care of and all the rest of that and so you reduce the water consumption dramatically um and you reduce carbon you know, by a factor of four, which, of course, is the goal of the law. But the interesting thing is it, it saves around $4,000 a unit in infrastructure cost. So there are all these, we call them co-benefits to getting it right. would think that cities and municipalities so financially strapped these days that that would get their attention. Yeah, and I think it is, and we're just getting this information out. And, you know, it's the first time that this kind of comprehensive look that these costs of sprawl are really available, calibrated to California conditions. And again, this is the Vision California process, which was sparked by the California Sustainability Community. And uh, and also uh, funded by the high-speed rail, who really sees their role not just as moving people from San Francisco to to, uh, L.A. and beyond, but also as seeing being a catalyst for the right kind of urban infill development. Because, of course... High-speed rail goes to the center of these towns. Our guest at Climate One today is Peter Calthorpe, the architect and author. I'm Greg Dalton. Are there other model cities? You, you mentioned uh, Washington is a favorite of yours. There's smart growth. Uh, there's Vancouver, Toronto. Uh, perhaps you wrote a little bit about Oregon and, and Maryland. Uh, who else around the country are doing some of these things, transit-oriented development in a smart way? Well, you know, people tend to discount Oregon. I don't know why. They think, well, they're special there. They can do things nobody else can do. But they have done something in in 1989, I was asked by a 1,000 Friends of Oregon, the environmental group, to do an alternative plan because the metropolitan government there was planning to build a big beltway freeway outside the urban growth boundary. So we proposed a new West Side Light Rail, which is now built, and a whole series of TODs instead of this beltway and succeeded. Well, the long and short of that is, is that Implementation adopted in 93, implementation starts in 96. Since 96, the VMT in Portland, this is like a, you know, a laboratory. Does this stuff work or is it just somebody's theory? Is it just a computer program? The, the uh, VMT has dropped in Portland by 12% while the VMT per vehicle miles traveled. Yeah. Per vehicle miles, the amount of auto dependence has risen yeah. in the country 9% has dropped in Portland 12% since 96. So we have a laboratory. We tested the idea. It works. And furthermore, uh, there's no market dislocation in Portland. People really desire the kind of communities that are being produced there. 
but people think, oh, tree huggers in Oregon. Yeah, North okay. Oregon. All right, so let's go. Maryland, or an East Coast. Uh, we, did a, we did a similar process in Salt Lake, which is not yeah. tree hugger land, right? No, no, yeah. Um, very red state. And what was fascinating there is when you ask anybody to think regionally and look at the long-term consequences, they come to a different conclusion than when they think locally short-term. And our political systems constantly asking people to think local, short-term. So the moment, even in a red state, you say, well, here are the long-term consequences of you continuing as you're going. Um, They basically said, no, we don't want that. And it was because housing was not affordable. And interestingly enough, the Mormon church wants the next generation to be able to afford to live there. It's a little different than other places where people say, well, if if we totally screw it up, my kids can go somewhere else. They'll just migrate and find a place that works if we don't make this place work. That what that was the fundamental kind of ethos difference there. I thought it was fascinating. Um, there are a lot of environmentalists. It turns out in in uh, Utah, they really love the mountains and they don't want to see them screwed up and 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 sprawled over. And then the state legislature looked at the economics of smart growth versus sprawl. And that won them over because they hate wasting public dollars. And it just costs so much more to build the sprawl future. So now they're extending their light rail lines. They're building TODs. Cities are competing for the next light rail extension in the Salt Lake region. And they have a state law that mandates open space elements and infill and transit. We're going to have a couple of questions, and then uh, pretty soon we're going to bring out the microphone for audience questions. Uh, so we've talked about other states. Let's talk about other countries. There's a massive amount of building going on in India, China, Dubai, the developing world. You've consulted with a lot of these governments doing master plans uh, where they're building whole cities, whole United States uh, from scratch. And people who care about climate would say, well, what the U.S. does doesn't matter so much as what happens in China and India. So tell us what's going on there in terms of what they're getting right on sustainable cities. Well, first of all, it matters what everybody does. It does matter what the United States does. We can't take our eye off that ball. But certainly what's going on in China is very significant. And, you know, they're building high-density new towns, but they're building them on a sprawl model. So they're using the same kind of big arterials, super blocks, enclaves, gated communities. And what once was a very healthy culture of people walking in cities and biking is now turning into environments where it's almost impossible to walk. I mean, if yeah. you build if you build an arterial grid uh, that b- basically puts intersections a quarter mile apart, you got a long walk just to get the opportunity to cross a street that's too wide to cross comfortably. So you stop walking. And in those environments, you stop riding bicycles. And all of a sudden, the foundation for their transit systems, which are always a good walkable origin and a good walkable destination. Nobody uses transit if they're stranded at either end. Um, That begins to erode. And so you have what you have in Beijing, which is complete gridlock. So we're trying now to say, you got it right. You got the density right um, for you. Uh, but you need more mixed use and you need a fine-grained, human-scale street network that allows pedestrians and bikes easy access throughout. And they're listening and they're building some, you know, small experiments like we're doing a new town for 1.5 million people based on this idea. And they want to see, does it work? It's a little bit like the Portland experiment. Is this going to work? 
I said to you earlier that it's sort of like the Soviet model. I lived in Beijing in the 80s and rode my bike, bicycle around everywhere. Really? And now I go back there and, yeah, there's massive blocks and massive buildings. And you're right. There's a subway. There's more subway. But to get from one subway stop to another or the subway stop to where you want to go is a long haul and a hot sun and you end up in the cab. Uh, but you said that it wasn't a Soviet model. It's actually a European model. What yeah, all this, the, the kind of towers in the park. Uh, super grid, super block was developed by Corbusier and a whole group of European modern architects who said, we're going to throw out everything. He actually wanted to demolish the left bank of Paris and build high-rise towers. Well, that image has been so potent that here in the United States, we used it for all our public housing for many decades, and we're trying to undo that mistake. And um, so it's not just the Eastern Bloc that adopted that. That's considered the modernist paradigm, and it's still very dominant throughout uh, the East and the developing countries. It's, it's uh, also the norm in India, tragically. So um, the, the power of these paradigms is extraordinary. Peter Calthorpe is our guest here at Climate One, the architect and author. I'm Greg Dalton. Where are some places, other countries that are getting it right? There's a massive amount of building in the developing world. What they, how they build their cities and the technology they use will lock that in for the decades to come. What are some other bright spots overseas? Well, a lot of the northern European countries are, are you know, the small, and we, once again, we discount them because they're small. Scandinavian. But you look at, at, at travel behavior in Sweden, where per capita income is higher than ours, and uh, the climate's not so great, right? It's over 50% walk-bike, the modes, but they can afford to drive Volvos and Saabs, even if they don't own them anymore, um, but they don't. Why? Because there's a culture and there's an urban fabric that allows people to choose the other. You got, you know, you got all these pictures of people in Copenhagen riding bicycles in the snow, right? Because that's the way they get to work. They, they you know, they, they've made that decision a long time ago. And by the way, they're healthier for it. But it's not a sign of poverty. I mean, it's interesting. One of the, the debates in right. China is, oh, right. well, we don't want to go backwards. Biking and walking is, you know, primitive. We want the, the we want the the, the technology of prosperity. Well, I think the bicycle is a technology of prosperity. I'd much rather ride my bike around Beijing than sit in a cab yeah. going nowhere. At least when you're riding your bike in Beijing, you could go somewhere, and, and now you sit in a cab for hours to get to get a few yeah. miles. Yeah. Uh, this is very interesting. It will be much more interesting when you come up and start asking some questions. So please do. We'll start the line over there with Devin, and if you'd like to uh, get up and ask some questions for Peter Kelthorpe, we uh, welcome you to... Uh, to do that, if, you, if you're on this side, it'd be helpful if you could go through the other door and cross this uh, camera. Thanks for doing that. Um, let's bring it back home for one moment. Um, you mentioned uh, sea level rise and building levees around the bay. I mean, do you think that really the Bay Area is going to have to build levees around the entire area of the bay, or some communities will be saved and some will not? I don't know how you take a vote to say we're going to abandon this community. You know, we're going to move out and let it. You know, the reality is you can afford to build levees, and you know, as much who as who can we, afford to build levees? Well, that that becomes an issue. Uh, but you know, uh, Our state Holland, is Den- so Denmark broke. is a good example of that you can actually make them work. Um, we had some failures in New Orleans, and uh, so we've got to be a lot smarter about how we do it. But it's it's technically feasible, and it, it's probably necessary. As I say, you look at the inundation maps, and it's over 200,000 acres. It's 
$62 billion worth of development that will be impacted if we don't do something. Wow. And then... So that's another economic burden. Once again, I believe that we need to take... We're lucky enough to have uh, the need for development. We're not Detroit where, you know, people are just moving out and there's no... There's no development to, to, you know, to help pay for the infrastructure. There's a great tradition, and my developer friends hate it when I go here, but, you know, uh, a lot of those streetcar suburbs, uh, the, the streetcars were paid for by the developers. And Brooklyn is a great example. The developers of Brooklyn paid for the streetcars that went over because it enhanced the value, it connected and made that, that neighborhood worthwhile. So I think development can help pay for a lot of the stuff we need, the levees, the transit extensions, um, uh, flood control projects, parks, open space, schools. Those are all things that development can pay for. Certainly seen that in San Francisco. Oh, no, wait a minute. Yeah. Help pay for. Help pay for. <laughs> we certainly saw that in San Francisco, the Third Street rail line. I remember that going in and all of a sudden buildings just blossoming along that rail line before it was, before well, it was even finished. We have the sense that the public ought to invest in a piece of infrastructure that enhances property values without capturing some of the prop, that enhancement back. Now, of course, the much maligned redevelopment agencies are their financing is all based on this notion that if the public sector invests something, then then the they we ought to be able to capture the value and, re, and use it to pay for those investments. Our guest at Climate One today is architect and author Peter Calthorpe. Let's have an audience question, please. Peter Calthorpe is a uh, hero of mine, <laughs> a personal hero, um, and his systems thinking is what allowed me to evolve from a NIMBY into a more widespread environmentalist. Um, but like every prophet, you're very controversial. And so um, it seems to me the missing piece um, in the debate over, let's say, salt works or other projects that have environmental challenges is um, can you uh, articulate the regional needs as well as the uh, single-issue people articulate the impacts. Um, and it seems to me that that hasn't been happening yet, although you did it today. But in well, terms of the public dialogue, that, that hasn't been happening adequately. You're absolutely right. I mean, getting people to think regionally and look at the consequences of small local decisions versus holistic regional decisions is very difficult, and you need a platform. And now we finally have a platform to do that, which is a sustainable community strategy. We have to do that. And so there are groups um, that are out there that, that are trying to engage the public, and there's a great operation going on now by, uh, with the uh, uh, Silicon Valley Foundation has organized a group, and there's a great online site where people can go and actually invent their own regional future and look at the environmental and economic consequences. It's called youchoosebayarea.org. Go on that site, and you can actually play around. You can become a regional planner. And it's through that exercise of dealing with the trade-offs. We did this wonderful uh, workshop in, in Salt Lake to kick things off. We got uh, about 500 people, you know, really engaged people, stakeholders, we set them at tables of six with a big map of the region, and we handed them a stack of chips mm-hmm. that were to scale that represented the next million people if they continued at the density. And we said, okay, each table, you figure out where these chips are going to fall. 
And without any prompting, after they worked a while, they started stacking the chips up, representing high densities, and they started placing chips on existing developed areas. So they, by grappling with the problem, they came to the, the right conclusion, which was we need higher densities and we need infill and redevelopment. And it is, but it's until people engage that problem and realize that you can't just spread the chips out. And when they see physically the consequence of spreading those chips out, then they begin to make the right decisions. So you're completely correct. People need to engage this larger regional design challenge. And we finally have the mechanism to make that happen. And I'm hoping it will bring around real change. Um, the missing piece is the large segment of the population that says we don't want any. We don't, we don't, we don't accept that there's an, an, another million people coming. We just don't buy it, or, and they don't come here. And that's really the dialogue. It's not about coming here. You know, this is – the state of California is going to grow because people are going to have babies. I mean, you may say, well, if you have a bad economy and you don't grow the jobs, you're not going to – They won't come. They won't come. Well, if that were true, then there wouldn't be overpopulation problems in India. And lots of, you know, very bad economies generate population just through natural childbirth, natural cycle. So it's not – you can't turn it off unless you go to a China policy and say, we're going to start to police how people have babies. So uh, I don't, I, th- that's a big cop-out. You have to deal with the growth. And quite frankly, the Bay Area should be thankful that we have the growth to deal with because it's what we can use to repair so much of what we've misdesigned. Better than being Detroit. And is it about a million housing units in uh, the Bay Area in the next co- couple decades? ABAG just, uh, Association of Bay Area Governments, just revised their projections because of the jobs housing balance issue and because of a, a closer look at the demographics. And they basically moved the target from around 700,000 new units up to 900 plus um, for the year 2035. And so now they've got a set of projections. It's higher. It's making everybody anxious but it's getting us to a jobs housing balance. Then you've got the problem of, well, do we just say the jobs are over on the peninsula and the housing's in East Contra Costa and East Alameda and Solano and, God bless them, they're just going to commute all the way across the bay? Or are we going to find, make the tough choices and get the housing where the jobs are? That's the second order of business. Next question for Peter Calthorpe. Um, earlier in the conversation, you um, referred to the fact that the political structure that we have is not focused on the future and not focused on um, accommodating the needs of future generations. And you referred to that uh, a moment ago as well, the default settings really being for um, looking locally and short term. Now, some of the um, sorts of workshop activities that you just referred to, I suppose, provide some kind of counterbalance to that um, providing an opportunity to look a little bit longer term and more systemically. But with uh, the political structure being the way it is, as you referred to, um, what can be done at that level? What what needs to be done at that uh, level of political systemic intervention or redesign in order to enable uh, a forward-looking approach? You know, there's no silver bullet. That's the you know, $300,000 question. There's no simple answer to that. And sometimes I want to just throw up my hands and say, we're just, you know, how can we overcome that really natural impulse to say, I like it the way it is. I don't want it to change. Um, I guess one of the things, besides state legislation, and there's all sorts of stuff we should and can and now have done, and I think we're going to build on that new state legislation, 
I want to see the environmental community come together. And, uh, you know, there is an 800-pound gorilla in the room of the environmental community. And it's carbon. It's climate change. I mean, we can go around saving this little piece of wetland or this piece of a forest somewhere. If we don't address climate change, those ecologies are going to be completely destroyed as climate shifts and the the ecological basis for those environments goes away. So it's really a new world for the environmental community. And they need to think in whole systems approaches and not piecemeal, you know, this is my piece of the habitat that I'm concerned with. And I think if they come together as a kind of a, a, a grassroots force that really thinks systemically and also thinks about development, then I think that'll be a big agent for change. That's why I keep, I'm not against the enviros. I just, I feel like it's almost their responsibility to help bring about this change. And so I get very frustrated when they are very divided and, and, you know, operating with double standards. Divided. I mean, they compete against each other for funders, yeah. for, for press time, that sort of thing. So it's not as though Enviros are a monolith. In fact, they have, they compete in a marketplace, right? Well, and also take the Sierra Club, which is great. I mean, at the state level and on the national level, they have all the right policies about land use and they understand the big picture and the, the climate change carbon nexus. But it's their local, the independence of their local branches that, that run sideways to that. And so there's institutional issues within environmental communities that need to be sorted out. They're the only one that's actually a democracy. I should mention that the executive directors of both the Sierra Club and NRDC will be here on this stage in September, and we'll have a conversation about some of the things that they're seeing in common. I'll ask them some of these questions. Wait a minute. I got a great uh, NRDC story. Oh. Sorry. Sorry to go on this quite so long. Uh, I think it was in the 80s, uh, Mayor Koch in New York had this brilliant idea of building transit-oriented development. I mean, he was way ahead of his time and wanted to build a uh, mixed-use project at Atlantic Terminal, which is the biggest transit node in New York, but for Grand Central, it's in Brooklyn. Uh, and so we helped design that. It was opposed by the NRDC because, because of local air quality impacts. Now... Fast forward almost 25 years, they're, the, I think, the most clear-headed, strongest advocates of smart growth in the environmental community. So there's a learning curve, I guess, is what I'm saying. And hopefully the, the, that community is going to go through the learning curve and end up at the, uh, to be unified and powerful. We're talking about sustainable urbanism with Peter Calthorpe at Climate One. Next audience question, please. Peter, you uh, mentioned some of the federal policies that got us to where we are in our urban areas and also some of the state policies here in California that might help to turn that around. And I'm just curious if you have particular federal or state policy recommendations that you'd like to see to help speed some of the changes to more sustainable urbanism. Well, they're ongoing. Um, For the first time, this was always one of my dreams, that the idea that you have HUD and Department of Transportation and EPA, separate departments, separate agendas, you know, piecemeal thinking – they actually have a sustainable communities program that that joins these three departments, and they try to look for the synergies. Now, of course, the the right wing in the Congress is trying to defund everything they do, but they're out there funding regional thinking, and they're providing dollars for regions around the United States to do the same kind of thing we're going to have to do with SB 375, which is look at uh, low-carbon strategies in futures. So those kinds of things are already in place. They just need better funding. I mean, 
we subsidize sprawl dramatically, and we're going to have to subsidize to level the playing field. We're going to have to subsidize uh, good urban revitalization. Um, nothing's free, so it's just about the policies. You know, tragically, we still spend too much money on more roads, um, and that, that's a, once again institutional habit. Next question for Peter Calthorpe. Hi, I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on technology influencing the models. Uh, for example, uh, Cisco Systems talks about the network being the fourth utility, especially in, in urban environments. And the example is uh, Songdo, a greenfield development in Korea that they're working on to bring more uh, features into people's homes to reduce VMT. And can you talk about any models that take those um, characteristics into account? Well, there's all sorts of technology overlays, and uh, I, I know they're important. And you know, it's fabulous that you can you know look on your iPhone and not only get the bus, you know, say I need to go there, and it'll give you the bus routes, and it'll give you the walking distance, and it'll, that's a great enhancement. So that kind of technology, I think, really is great. And it, and the fact that we can be more decentralized in our workplace is also great. These are all things that we can build our urbanism on. But in the end, we need a foundation of good urbanism. People aren't going to sit at home and do their work. They need to come together. In, they need the social interaction. And that's why they need walkable communities around their uh, workplace. You're not going to take uh, leave your car at home if you're working in Bishop Ranch and you literally cannot walk to a restaurant or to a laundry on your way or to or from or anything else. You're stranded. You, you end up taking the car. So the urban fabric is really issue one. And then you can enhance with technology. Now, when I read Al Gore's new book, it's a laundry list of technologies, and it completely leaves out land use. And I think that's a big mistake because the most fundamental thing we can do is develop low-carbon lifestyles and then enhance them with the tech, top it off with the technology. And, but there's too much of this notion that there's going to be a big technology solution coming down the road and we can just continue doing what we were doing. There, you know, that may or may not be true, but continuing doing what we were doing still has other consequences. Land consumption, uh, cost of living for work, workforce. You know, what do we mean when we say prosperity? What do we mean when we say a good life? I, I think redefining the American dream is, is more than appropriate at this moment especially what we just went through with the economy. Coming from someone who grew up in, uh, at least in your youth, lived in Coral Gables, Florida. Which was a planned, walkable community. Norman Rockwell uh, ideal, you say. Okay, next audience question for uh, Peter Calthorpe. Yeah, so uh, what I'm getting from your example for, for uh, from Envision Utah is that one of the ways to get folks to shift from don't build this in, in my backyard to really understanding the system that is demanding denser housing is to engage people individually um, so, that, so that you're really working on helping people change their individual behavior in the service of the region as a whole. And my question is essentially how do you scale up that model because now we're looking at many, many cities and regions uh, in the states and in California that need to go through this transition. So is there a way to scale up that individual contact uh, that would make it possible for millions of people to go through the kind of transition you were seeing in Utah? So can that kind of charrette uh, model 
be standardized in some way? Yeah, and it is. I, I, and I think there are two levels. Uh, you know, this online exercise is great, it, but it's still people kind of privately sitting in their room doing their own thing. I'm still a big believer in in gatherings, in workshops where people actually show up. And we always do this, you know, you might call it a little manipulative, but we, we kind of mix people. So if you come in in a group of like-minded people, you end up sitting at tables with other people who aren't necessarily from your community or your your special interest. And so they, there gets to be a one-on-one dialogue around a design problem. I still love that format. There's no reason we can't do just a lot of those, and we need to. And uh, once again, th- those are happening in the Bay Area. Next audience question for Peter Kelthorpe. Hi, how are you? I'm Clara Vondersh with Climate Works Foundation. Um, I just uh, moved here from Washington, D.C., and I'm so refreshed by this um, you know, the, the community here in San Francisco, everyone's kind of like-minded, progressive thinking, but you don't have that in the rest of the country. And um, living in Virginia my whole life um, certainly didn't have it there. Uh, I like what you said about the environmental community banding together, but I worry that the environmental community writ large sometimes um, inspires a lot of animosity from other people. There's they're a group that is very polarizing, and um, I think a lot of the, the right and um, business groups often have a sort of knee-jerk response to anything green or environmental. So I was thinking, um, is there a way to engage more with the business community, engage more with business councils around the country to help them see the benefits of this approach, which clear, clearly there are many? Um, and is there any attempt in your, that you know about to do that? Because it seems like they have more power than maybe some of the environmental groups. That's a very good point. And the reality, of course, is that most of the business community – um, here in the Bay Area knows that they need smart growth to be able to kind of tap into a workforce that's reasonably priced and that's accessible. You know, if, if we keep... Look, our housing costs here are, when you look at the rankings, are number one and number two, highest. Uh, the highest, actually, is San Jose, uh, Santa Clara in the nation. Um, and then the second highest is San Francisco, Oakland. Um, I, I didn't know that before I started doing yeah. research for my book. But so that high housing cost, because of not enough of the right stuff in the right place, is a huge burden to businesses. And you can see businesses saying, look, I'm not going to locate the next thing here uh, because I can't afford the workforce. On the other hand, you have such an amazing creative environment here that the businesses they emerge here and they want to stay here. And so I think they're on our side and they are very articulate about being on our side. And by the way, 20 years ago, the developers were not, were all for sprawl. Now the ULI, the Urban Land Institute, which is the, you know, the biggest organization of developers have completely endorsed smart growth. And they, not because it's good environmentalism, but because it's good business for them. Because it's what people need and want. So, yes, they're trying to be broad. You know, these these exercises um, need to bring all the stakeholders to the table, and it's very important that the business community be part of that. And with that, we have to end it there with Peter Calthorpe, author of uh, Urbanism in the Age of Climate Change. Thank you for coming to Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank, Thank you, you all for coming.